0: Dress, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common every day we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress
1: the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan.
0: So Cass, I have a question for you. How long have we been making this podcast and how long, (laughs) so maybe this is two questions, but uh, how long have I been saying that I wanted to do an episode on wax prints? Clearly, this is a rhetorical question for our regular listeners who have been hearing me mention this time and time again for the last four years.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it's been a while since we've been promising <laughs> this, but now it is here. <laughs> it's true.
0: Yes, it's finally happening. And when our dear friend and past dressed guest, Natalie Nudel, happened to mention that a not-quite-yet-to-be-release documentary that she had seen. Recently seen and loved was on wax print. Well, I got super duper excited, started looking into it, and reached out to today's guest. Yes, filmmaker and composer
1: Iwan Obanyan joins us today to discuss her film, Wax Print, which, as she says, took her quote on a journey across the globe to trace the 200 year history of this iconic textile. From the intricate handcrafted boutiques of Indonesia to the cotton fields of North America, and from the European industrial mills to the bustling markets of West Africa, the story of how one fabric came to symbolize a continent, its people, and their struggle for freedom. End quote. And these are exactly the kind of stories, as you know, that we love to tell on Dress. So, Iwan, welcome
0: to the show. Iwan, welcome to Dress. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank
2: you so much for having me. It's a
0: pleasure. Before we begin to untangle the origins of wax print and rather tangled the origin, or or perhaps I should really say origins, plural, are, I'm hoping you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. You are joining us today from the UK, if I am correct. Well, actually I'm
2: in the Northeast of England because I've been here for most of the uh, pandemic lockdown period. Um, But yes, originally I am from London uh, I was born in Colchester and raised in London. And in my day-to-day life, I am an audio professional. I run my company, ii I. Studios, and I make films, one of which is Waxprint, which is what I'm here to talk about today and a month that I do loads of podcasts for lots of different amazing people.
0: You are a pro because when we signed on and I saw you were already set up with your professional equipment, I was like, oh, she's good.
2: Hopefully, yes.
0: One of the first questions that we've been asking our guests recently is about their earliest memories of fashion. And I want to ask you the same question, but perhaps with a little bit of a twist given our topic. What are some of your earliest memories of wax print?
2: Oh, there's quite a few. I think the one that I remember most keenly is my mom is a Pentecostal Christian. and Attended a very typical Pentecostal Nigerian church. And one of the services that we had in the week was something called a night vigil. And this service would start very late at night, like, I don't know, around nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, and it would go on until the early hours of the morning with the adults praying all night. And obviously, us children couldn't keep up with that kind of schedule. So at the back of the church, they would put down wax prints on the floor. Um, we They called it rappa, So they would just put down rappa on the floor and us children would sleep at the back of the hall while the adults prayed at the front of the hall. And I just remember as a kid lying on these Rappas and almost like just getting mesmerized by the the wax print designs. And there was one design in particular that I remember quite clearly. It's a very typical Igbo sort of southeastern colorway. It's a very rich, vivid blue, um, almost like a royal blue, and a very deep and rich, again, vibrant orange. And there were these patterns. It's almost like a horse, but with like a curly swell so that all the horses sort of merged together. And I remember just tracing the patterns and just being completely almost almost like a meditative process until I would fall asleep at the back of the hall. Um, so that's one of my earliest memories of wax print as a child.
0: You grew up with wax print, which you would later go on to explore very differently as a filmmaker. When did you become interested in excavating the history of this textile for the purposes of making a film? And how did you go about doing so?
2: well it all began with my clothing line on a men which i started around 2014 ish and i wanted to basically make clothing from wax prints that i could wear because up until that point all of the wax prints that i saw were very let's just say very auntie <laughs> and i didn't see myself wearing those kind of wax prints so i created the clothing line on a men and I came up with the slogan "Traditional Streetwear," and I basically put together my first collection, which is basically like T-shirts and hoodies and that sort of thing, combining wax print. And I thought to myself, okay, I've got these clothing; they're made out of this African textile. I say African in quotes. I want to make a small video so that my customers know a bit more about this textile, right? And. To do that, I'm going to obviously do the usual, like research the history and and then maybe do some voiceover. And there's this festival called Afropunk, which is a celebration of all things, alternative black culture. And I thought I'll go out there because I know that a lot of the people that go there will be using wax prints in really amazing different ways. It'll be a nice thing to stimulate the senses of my audience. So I went out to Afropunk in 2016 and I started shooting. And that was the beginnings of wax print film. So what it was initially supposed to be a five-minute video. Mm-hmm. And it ended up becoming the 97-minute mammoth that you see today.
0: Well, I, for one, was enthralled with each and every one of those 97 minutes, particularly some of the footage that you include of the making of wax print And as a historian, I knew a little bit about the process behind it, but it was very, very cool in your film to see it being made by hand when you visit Global Mamas in Ghana. And I really want to make this distinction here because not all contemporary wax print is made by hand. And I think we may touch on that in a little bit, but in the meantime, can you tell us a little bit about how the quote unquote real deal is made?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you said, quote unquote, real deal. (laughs) Because in this 21st century of um, so much mirage, um, it can be often difficult to work out what's real and, and what's fake. But for me, wax print is essentially the technique of using melted wax to resist the dye on a piece of cloth that you've dyed. So the idea is that you have a, a piece of cloth. It could be a white piece of cloth. It, you know, cotton is usually the base that is used. And you put some melted wax in a particular shape, say, for example, a circle. And then you dip the whole cloth into a vat of dye. And when you take the cloth out and hang the cloth to dry and then scrape off the wax, Everything around the spot where the wax is will have the color of the dye. So for example, red. But the bit that had the wax on it would be white because the wax is basically, obviously wax is essentially hydrophobic. So it resists any liquid. Um, So that's the simplest definition I can think of to define the wax resist process.
0: Yeah, and oftentimes these textiles have more than one color. So it's kind of marathon planning ahead time of where you want the color and where you want the resist the patterns can be very simple you know one color and geometric but then again they can also be incredibly complex and i wasn't familiar with global mamas just yet when i saw your film but afterwards i jumped on their website And I found what they are doing there super duper interesting. And I think Cass and I might go on to tell our listeners a little bit more at the end of the episode. But, um, you know, this is what happens when you have women-led organizations, just saying. Yes. (laughs) One thing that I found interesting on their website is that they don't necessarily call what they're doing wax print. They call it African batik. And this is where some of the history of wax print becomes complicated. You know, this wax resist technique, which is used in quote unquote wax print textiles that we're discussing today, is oftentimes called batik. So, where do we originally see the batik process being employed historically? So, the batik technique is actually quite
2: ancient. People have used it across many cultures from time immemorial. So you see it in places like India, different parts of Africa, including ancient Egypt, and then of course in Indonesia, who were the people who really took it to just that next level of intricacy and detail. They kind of created this, it's almost like a pen for writing with the melted wax, and it's called a chanting. And they mastered the art of drawing intricate designs with the wax and then layering colors upon colors. And the design method was so time intensive that it would often take months to create one piece of batik, which meant that there was almost like a social hierarchy in terms of who could wear batik, because to pay for something that was made by a premium artisan over six months to a year meant you had to have a lot of money, right? So often these hand batiks, these beautiful intricate hand batiks were worn by the nobility and then less intricate ones would be worn by people of a lower class as well. But it's an an
0: ancient technique. It's very, very old. And I've said before on the show that if a textile could be a repository of history Wax print would truly be an incredible archive of the past and also the global history of colonialism. When I was in grad school, one of our professors used to refer to it as Dutch wax print. So how exactly did the Dutch figure into the batik trade?
2: Well, like all of the Western powers of that time, they entered through force brutality, colonialism. Um, So as with the British uh, colonizing different parts of the world, they for a period of time were the colonizers of Indonesia. And so they would have been exposed to Batik because it's like I say, it's it's part of the fabric, excuse the pun, of that society. (laughs) So they would have encountered the Batik there. And there's a few stories, you know, some people say that it was soldiers who were fighting out there, who brought it back to England and the Netherlands or Holland as it was at the time. Um, Some people say it was merchants who wanted to send it back to wives and loved ones, merchants who wanted to send it back to be replicated and see if they could get in on the trade and, and make more money by mechanizing the process and producing as much of it as you can. Just typical industrialization, really.
0: Yes. All of a sudden, in the mid-19th century, we see all of these European companies attempting to mass-produce batiks industrially. So how is this process, which was historically more of a handmade artisanal process, was it adapted by and for industry?
2: Well, they had to actually create machines that were specific to batik making. So literally whole machines that only did this, this one thing. So there was a lot of innovation, technological innovation. There was a lot of of stealing of of ideas and designs that already existed in Indonesia and had done for a very long time. Um, There's a lot of science involved in terms of color and how to apply the color, how to make the fabric water fast and all of those sorts of things. There's a lot of technical innovation involved in this process of mechanizing what was originally um, a handmade process.
0: One way they were mechanizing production at this time was roller printing, and for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with different techniques out there used for printing textiles, roller printing is when a motif or a design is kind of carved into or incised on the surface of a long cylinder, oftentimes metal or wood, and then the fabric gets rolled around the cylinder, and then that being colored and inked, it transfers the colored pattern to the cloth. So all of a sudden what's happening here is you're going from a batik design taking five or six months to render by hand to these lightning speed advances by way of this roller printing method. So I want I'm curious, when the Europeans were making these imitation batiks, how did the Indonesians react to them? And then also how did they eventually end up in Africa?
2: So I think when the Indonesians saw the imitation batiks, it, it's like a curiosity, you know, as hu- as human beings, I always say that we're kind of like magpies, you know, we like whatever little thing is, is glittering. It's like, oh, I wonder what that is, you know? And so they were intrigued by it for a while and it did sell quite well. But then after a period of time, it was seen as not as good as the original thing. And of course, it it wasn't as good as the original thing. If you look at some of the early pictures, you can tell it's just, there's dyes bleeding into each other. The lines aren't as clean, certainly not as clean as hand-drawn chanting with the wax. So the trade sort of died off with the rejection of the imitation batiks. That's what they would have been at the time, is imitation batiks. And it was also around the time that the West were colonizing Africa and going into Africa and doing all the things that we now know that they were doing in terms of colonialism and and, and whatnot. And there was a particular guy by the name of Ebenezer Brown Fleming, who was the son of a preacher. And he was also a merchant. He was from Scotland, Glasgow specifically. And Through his father's connections with the missionaries who were also going out to Africa to preach the so called good news to the Africans, um, he was able to understand what some of the market needs were in Africa. Mm -hmm. One of them being that, obviously, they were preaching modesty you know, you need to be modest, you need to dress like a good Christian, and so on and so forth. And, you know, we need some cloth for you to do that with. Um, And so, Ebenezer Brown Fleming was able to sort of fill that niche with these new imitation batiks. So it helped the missionaries to get the money they needed to further their cause. And then Ebenezer Brown Fleming was able to make money by selling the cloth and discovering this new market, essentially. So that's that's how it got through,
0: yeah. What's always been really interesting to me about wax prints in Africa is how they were adopted into the culture. And it may have been the missionaries that were introducing these textiles, but. African women played this really, really dynamic role in their adoption. And they began going back to the manufacturer's agents with what they wanted, you know, telling them what they wanted in terms of color and patterns. So they were super instrumental in building the market in a whole variety of ways.
2: Oh, absolutely. These were powerful, powerful African women who were essentially the middle women between the merchants and the actual African women who were and wanted to purchase the cloth, what they had was they had their finger on the pulse. You could call it the fashion pulse, the style pulse, whatever you want to call it, they had their finger on the pulse. They knew what colors were hot, what kind of styles the women wanted to see, what kind of imagery the women wanted to see, what kind of imagery was not acceptable that was taboo in that culture. And they were able to communicate that. And also they became the distributors as well of the cloth um, across Western Central Africa, Togo being one of the biggest markets at that time. Um, And that's where we get the term the Nana Benz. So they were really, really important women.
0: The point in the film when you speak about the Nana Benz was one of my absolutely favorite parts because I did not know this term before and I got so excited by their story Will you share with our listeners a little bit more about the Nana Benz?
2: Yeah, so the name Nana Benz or Mama Benz is taken from the fact that these powerful women who were traders in wax print were often the first women in their villages to be able to buy luxurious cars such as the Mercedes Benz, hence the name, with the proceeds from the sale of the cloth essentially. So they were really powerful. They weren't just socially powerful, they were economically powerful, but they were also politically powerful as well. There are some stories that are still told where, for example, the government would have dignitaries and diplomats coming and they didn't have enough cars to transport these dignitaries and diplomats around. And so they would often call the Nana Benz and say, can we get some of your cars so that we can... (laughs) (laughs) transport these dignitaries around so they you know and some of them were also politically powerful as well and they moved in high circles and they wielded great influence and it all stems back to the trade in wax prints
0: their story makes me smile it gives me so much joy they were power players not only in fashion but also in the political sphere they're powerful we're going to take a brief sponsor break here but more with iwan when we return Welcome back. Iwan, several times in the film, you pose questions to individuals you meet along your journey, and you ask them, is wax print African? And I think this question is really interesting. And the crux of this question is that, on one hand, it has its origins in European colonization. But now, many people associate the aesthetic of wax print with Africa and african So I kind of want to turn this question back on you. Is wax print African to you? And if so, in what ways have African consumers embraced it as their own?
2: I feel as though wax print is a hybrid cloth. In the film, I did say it was African. It's kind of a conclusion that I definitely don't stand by anymore. It's a hybrid cloth. It's a mixture of European technological innovation, Indonesian ideas and African creativity, you know, sort of mashed into this hybrid cloth. And I think that's how I see it. It, It's just a hybrid textile. So when Africa was going through its independence phase, so, you know, from the late 1950s through to the 60s, one of the things that a lot of African nations said was, you know, you don't get to bring your goods into our country and sell them here right? Togo was one of the nations that didn't have that as as a rule. And so they became almost like the portal for wax prints to enter into Africa. And that's where the Nanabendis really made their money, was being the distributors, the wholesale distributors from the merchants in the West to the different parts of, of Africa, mainly West Africa and Central Africa. So I'd say, yeah, they had a great influence on African style African fabrics at that time, specifically wax prints. I guess, I don't know if that really answers that question because it's difficult to say how did the African markets make wax print its own? It's, yeah, I think the bends are a big part of that.
0: One aspect of these textiles that I find um, really intriguing is the way in which they have evolved as silent forms of communication, because specific patterns acquire names and meanings within the communities in which they're worn. This is fascinating. Yeah,
2: that that's definitely one of the ways that Africans put their stamp on these fabrics, because the patterns initially were Indonesian. That that was their inspiration, um, or or from the minds of you know European designers, at, you know, in the factories of Flisco or ABC in England, right? Yeah, so these, they would often bring these designs to Africa, show them to the nanobenzers and say, you know, do you like these patterns? Do they work? And the nanobenzers would say, well, no, you know, we can't have, you know, for example, you know, a spider or something because a spider is not a good symbol. So, you know, let's change it into something else, for example. And sometimes the designers, merchants from Europe would bring designs to Africa and it would be one thing. So take, for example, there's the pattern that is known as lino in the West, but they took it there and it became the Ungrateful Husband. And the Ungrateful Husband was a print that if you wore it, you were basically saying, you know, that this guy is not doing good. He's not doing good by me. I don't know. He's beating me. He's cheating on me. He's doing some nonsense. And I'm wearing this print as a statement to that. There's other designs. Uh, For example, there's the bird that's in the cage and there's another one flying out. And that one basically means that, you know, if you cheat, I can cheat too, essentially. Um, There's so many. And then they would be inspired also by moments within that particular culture. So, for example, if a new president was elected, there would be commemorative prints to commemorate that president's arrival into power. Um, There's also recognition of technology. So you have like wax prints from like the 80s or like early 90s with literally a CD on it. or or roller skates, or lipstick, or, or, you know, an MP3 player. But when Barack Obama became the president, there was a wax print that came out that had a handbag on it around the same time that I think uh, Barack Obama was visiting Africa. And that wax print became known as Michelle Obama's handbag. So what I love about wax print is it's very, very, very fluid, you know? And I think, you know, Africa's in general are just very, like, fluid in their interpretation of things and creative. The thing you gotta understand about most African cultures is that they are storytelling cultures. A lot of our traditions were the oral tradition, right? We speak things and we make things new with the words that we speak. So I can imagine Anana Ben seeing something and saying, no, this is what it means. And then speaking that into the hearts and minds of the women. And it becomes that thing because words are really powerful in African culture.
0: These examples of specific prints that you just gave are such fun examples and of of something that we actually touch a lot on, on Dressed. You know, it's where the history of fashion meets up with politics and even the history of technology. And I love some of these textiles because they almost function as time capsules of current events, you know. One doesn't usually think of textiles as repositories of pop culture, but in the case of wax print, that does happen. Yeah, no, definitely. These were inventive women. And we absolutely thank them for that. (laughs) You touched on this a bit already when you were speaking about the struggle for independence that many African nations were going through during the 1960s. And in the film, you specifically note the 1960s as this watershed decade in African history. What role did wax print play in the display of African pride at that time?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. I went to ABC, which is in Manchester, or well, Hyde, in, in, in the north of England, to shoot for wax print film. And we went into the archives, and it's so interesting because as I was going through the archive, you can actually see the evolution of Africanity, for want of a better term. You can, you can see it you know, it sort of starts with very Indonesian designs by Ebenezer Brown Fleming. And then as you go along and you get to around the late 1950s, 1960s, it becomes very sort of Black Power. And it's like there's, you know, Africa for Africans and African independence and all of these slogans, you know, on the wax prints, you can actually see that moment in time in, in the actual archives. So I found that quite interesting and quite fascinating
0: this is a subversion of the fabric's colonialist origins. You know, these origins were oftentimes bloody and violent. And this is something that you actually acknowledge and address head on when you pay a visit to Almina Castle. What role did Elmina Castle and other castles or keeps like it play in the history of textile trading in many African countries?
2: Yeah, that's a big question. Elmina Castle is essentially a slave castle on the coast of Ghana, where enslaved Africans were taken and held there before being shipped across the ocean to different parts of the world, America, the Caribbean, to be enslaved on plantations for the wealth of European nations, uh, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the English, the Dutch, and so on and so forth. And it was a really hard thing to do, actually. And I think in the film, you see my reaction to that moment. And I reflect upon the history, because it's a painful history. It's not an easy history to reckon with. And when you look at the story of Waxprint, you can't help but see how entwined Waxprint is in that bloody history. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that has to be acknowledged because even when I think about the Indonesian roots of wax print I also can't help but think about the subjugation and colonization oftentimes brutal that the Indonesians went through as well and so for me wax print is a fabric that it's a fabric that has blood woven into its thread whether you like it or not it has pain woven into its threads but at the same time it also has strength, ingenuity, inventiveness, creativity, and survival woven into its threads as well. And so I can't hate it. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And I think that many wearers of wax print might not know these bits of painful history so do you feel like its meaning has been subverted sufficiently at this point to counter that history?
2: It has been subverted because it's now become a symbol of pride and resistance. But I think when I think a bit deeper into it, um, whenever you buy a piece of wax print, the fact of the matter is that the bulk of those profits are going into the pockets of Chinese and European businessmen. Mm-hmm for the generational wealth of of Chinese and European children.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned the fact that Chinese manufacturers are now capitalizing on the demand for these fabrics. And in recent years, there have been vast amounts of wax prints produced in China, pouring in for sale in African marketplaces. And many times these are imitations, they're fakes, they're straight up knockoffs of popular patterns that were created by more established manufacturers like ABC, which you have already mentioned, and Vlisco. Um, Vlisco, of course, being a producer of wax prints or hollandaise, as they are sometimes called, since the 1840s. So it's one of those Dutch companies that we were referring to earlier in the episode.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. It's interesting because over the years, the so-called Chinese fakes have almost become indistinguishable from the real, in quotes, um, wax prints. It's very, very hard. I remember hearing a story when I was at Vlisco by, I think it was Peter in the quality control department. And he said, at one point in Nigeria, there was a Vlisco store selling wax prints. And right next to them was a Chinese store selling fake Vlisco stickers to put on their fake wax prints right next door to the authentic Vlisco store, right? So it's like, like unabashed, uh, crookery or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. No, they'll, they'll, they, they go to any lengths. I mean, it, but it's at the end of the day, the patents that Vlisco and ABC sell—they also were stolen. At one point, th- th- there was the original batiks, the original designs. Whether you think of the wing of Garuda bird, which is known in Africa in some places, bunch of bananas or snails, right? That design is a is an old Indonesian design. And that's that's a sacred Indonesian bird, right? And it was put onto a batik because another thing you've got to remember with Indonesians is that the batiks, the designs that they created, were often based on religious symbology, uh, sacred animals, sacred plants, nature, that sort of thing, right? And so a lot of these designs were stolen in the first place. And now they're being stolen again 100 years plus later. So I think it's also a case of what goes around comes around really and truly, you know?
0: Yeah, and this kind of begs the question... Given this really long, literally centuries-long legacy of, quote, cultural appropriation, unquote, that has happened globally with this textile, and also concurrently at the same time, our contemporary association of these prints with African pride, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as to who should be wearing them or perhaps not. I think anybody should wear them. Iwan, you literally traversed the globe tracing the history of wax print up until its popularity today as a symbol of African diasporic pride. And this is a really complicated history. And I'm wondering if you had any final takeaways after you completed the film. So
2: it always comes back to the question of uh, how can we as Africans, how can we as Black people ensure that what we buy contributes to the generational wealth and the future and the economic development of Africans, both on the continent and in the diaspora, which is why I say that let's not neglect the textiles and the techniques that are indigenous to Africa at the altar of wax print. Let's rediscover the textiles of our ancestors Let's rediscover those techniques. Let's tell the world that it has value. Let's sell those things. Let's own those businesses. Let's own those factories. Let's own those textiles so that every time we purchase it, we know that we're giving back to our own children and building our own economic development as a people worldwide.
0: I'm so glad you say this because this is a reminder to us all that what we wear matters. And the very fabric of fashion is always interwoven with the whole multivalency of social issues. You know, careful consideration of what you choose to purchase, how you vote with your dollar makes a difference because what we wear matters. Iwan, when can our listeners expect to see the film that we've been discussing today? wax print the film is coming
2: out early next year for a worldwide release Uh so all you beautiful people out there listening to this beautiful dressed podcast will be able to get your hands on a copy early next year
0: i'm sure you'll be keeping us all up to date on the film's website and social media where can our listeners find you
2: So it's waxprintfilm.com and you can also follow me on all the social medias at waxprintfilm. So that's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and it will all be up there. And there will be screenings as well throughout the year building up to that as well. So you can also catch a screening at some point as well.
0: And all of that information will be pushed out via the channels that you just mentioned. 100%. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to chat. Thank you.
1: Iwan, thank you so, so very much for joining us today to share this bit about your film, which I'm certain many of our listeners, myself included, are chomping at the bit to see when it comes out in full release next year. In the meantime, again, as Iwan said, dress listeners, you can keep abreast of where and when that might be and learn a bit more about the film at waxprintfilm.com.
0: And speaking of websites, I did promise our listeners a bit more about the global mamas in Ghana, and you can check their website at globalmamas.org and just very briefly and I'm forcing myself to stay brief here because I could go on about this for a bit but they are a community of support staff um, who support more than 350 artisans who make products by hand using traditional techniques and African batiks aka wax print is one of their strong suits and you can learn More about their mission, their values, and, you know, the impacts that they're having in supporting women on their website, which we just mentioned. And on their website, you can also support them directly by buying their products. And you can buy lengths of their organic fair trade batiks, if you sew, perhaps. You can buy products already made from their batiks, including clothing, napkins, pillows, even pet accessories, so, get this cast. I bought a few things, including some napkins, but also a leash for Clementine. And the leash itself is actually woven together from leftover scraps of their boutiques. So they're oh, like that's using. amazing. They're using everything. It's very cool. Also, when you click on a product, it brings up a profile of the specific global mama who either made it or perhaps works in that region from which that product originates. And it's not just African boutiques or wax prints that they sell. They have all sorts of other things too, like jewelry and beauty products. So, it's a really, really cool organization. You can check them out at globalmamas.org. Absolutely. I'll be checking them out right after
1: we are done finished recording. And just to be clear here, these are the, as you said earlier, real deal textiles featured in the film that they are making by hand. And that is very cool that you can order directly from them. We of course love this. We love supporting makers and creators. And on that note, we won't keep you from placing your order any longer. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the journey of the textiles in your wardrobe
0: next time you get dressed. We love hearing from you all. So if you'd like to write to us with an episode suggestion or even a question, you can do so by emailing us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon.